This is The Efficiency Point, a podcast from Modern Pumping Today magazine. I'm your host, MPT editor Jay Campbell, along with our producer, Richard Council. You can find us online at mptmag.com and on any of your favorite podcast apps. While you're there, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help more listeners find the show. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Lynn Broadus, the founder of Broadview Collaborative and the incoming president of the Water Environment Federation. She's dedicated her career to building a sustainable water future, and I think you'll enjoy our discussion. We also preview the November issue of MPT, but first, some headlines. As you might expect, our top story on this episode is the California wildfires. Uh, California is still experiencing massive wildfires that have displaced thousands of people. According to the Associated Press, the Getty Fire and the Kincaid Fire have uh, evacuated more than 140,000 people as of this recording. The National Weather Service estimates that 21 million Californians are in an extreme fire danger. Of California's 58 counties, 43 are experiencing near-historic wind events, with winds up to 80 miles an hour in Southern California. The fires so far have consumed over 650 acres and is only 15% contained. Uh, Richard, have you have you been able to see any of the California wildfire coverage on the news this past week? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's pretty bad. It's uh, it just seems like they can't catch a break, especially with all the the new winds and the the new lines coming down and starting new fires. And it's just uh, seems like they're having a, a lot of trouble. So hopefully they can get it under control soon. Yeah, these wildfires are becoming. Um uh, well, they're becoming annual events in California, and uh, they just seem to be getting larger and larger. Yeah, that's um, right. The uh, wildfires, as you probably have been watching on the news, uh, are on the rise due to climate conditions in California, but also outdated infrastructure. And that's probably something of direct interest to our listeners. California's electrical utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, also known as PG&E, has uh, come under intense scrutiny during this latest round of fires. Its uh, downed power lines have been cited as a major contribution to the wildfires. Uh, The company has initiated statewide rolling blackouts to try and stave off further ignitions uh, due to failed lines. And uh, the fund that it set up uh, uh, due to a class action suit for the 2017 and 2018 wildfires has been reduced somewhat due to PG&E declaring bankruptcy protection recently. Uh, According to the U.S. US Geological Survey, wildfires uh, compromise water quality both during active burning and for months and years after the fire has been contained. Uh, Stay tuned later in the show when we hear from WEF's President-elect Lynn Broadus on pathways to a sustainable water future, where some of those concerns will be addressed. And more positive news, if you attended the 2019 Turbo Machinery and Pump Symposia in Houston this fall and wondered who you saw there, I have some good news for you. Texas A&M's Turbo Lab has released the TPS 2019 post-event profile with a breakdown of attendees and industries that were at the show. According to uh, Texas A&M, over 4,800 verified attendees came to this year's event with 51 countries represented. As you'd likely expect, the uh, top country in attendance by population was, of course, America with uh, 4,300. But we had attendees coming as far away as uh, Uganda, New Zealand, and uh, Australia. So that's that's a long trip. Um, Richard, can you imagine taking the flight from Australia to Houston, Texas? Well, I'll tell you, the uh, the flight I took to Greece was uh, was a solid 10 hours. So, and I'll tell you what, that... uh that was not a fun plane ride. So and I could I can only imagine how they feel uh, going all the way from the bottom side of the world. So, well, now, now, what pump conference did you attend in Greece, Richard? It's a 
it had everything to do with my uh, anniversary, so we kind of uh, wanted to keep it pretty simple. But oh, okay. uh, you know, it was, it was a fun time. See, I thought I thought <laughs> people only traveled because they wanted to attend uh, educational pump events. Well, of course, and that's why I was disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's okay. Uh, keep your chin up, Richard, because uh, mark your calendar for uh, September fifteenth and seventeenth of twenty twenty, uh, because that's when next year's TPS event is scheduled. The short courses will begin on September fourteenth. If you're listening to this and want more information about how to register to attend uh, next year's Turbo Machinery and Pump Symposia. Uh, information can be found at uh, Texas A&M's uh, Turbo Lab website, tps.tamu.edu. That's tps.tamu.edu. Our next news item will be of interest for our listeners in the Pacific Northwest. The Hydraulic Institute, through its Pump Systems Matter program, is offering a Pump Systems Assessment Professional Certification Prep course on November 12th through 14th in Seattle. A Pump Systems Assessment Professional, or PSAP, certification provides third-party validation for an individual's proficiency in pump fundamentals, pump system optimization, and implementation of pump system assets. For those wanting to become PSAP certified, this two-and-a-half-day course will better prepare you to take the challenging PSAP certification exam, and there's also an opportunity to sit for the PSAP exam after the course is completed for an additional fee. Hydraulic Institute members and standard partners will receive a 25% discount on both the prep course and the subsequent exam. For inquiries regarding the PSAP prep course and pricing, contact the Hydraulic Institute's Peter Gaden at pgaden at pumps.org or call 862-242-5679. 862-242-5679. And we'll include that information in the show description. Dr. Lynn Broadus is the founder of the Broadview Collaborative, an organization focused on sustainable and reliable water systems and services with a particular interest in water utilities, resource recovery, distributed infrastructure, social equity, and collaborative processes. She's also a board member and president-elect of the Water Environment Federation, and we're pleased to have her as our guest today. How are you doing, Lynn? I'm great, and it's wonderful to talk with you again. Uh, Lynn, how did you get involved in uh, water sustainability and resource recovery? Oh, gosh. I mean, I I think it kind of goes back to the basic roots of who I am as a person. I certainly grew up, um, you know, as a Girl Scout and among a family of gardeners and things like that that had me outside and and, um, uh, loving nature and growing up, you know, cutting my teeth on the first Earth Day back in 1970. All those things are sort of part of my DNA. And and then in, in college, I became very interested in um, what today we might call kind of closed loop systems, but uh, we didn't, I don't think we used the term back then. Uh, and then, you know, that kind of carried through my my career in a couple of different ways. But um, I really kind of landed on water very accidentally. My family had moved to to uh, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in 2000, and the job that I had I enjoyed with the Nature Conservancy. But I eventually felt like I needed to find something more local uh, so that I could become part of that Milwaukee community and uh, rather than just being a you know a virtual employee from um, uh, back at the home office and uh, and what happened was I became the executive director of Milwaukee Riverkeeper and I immediately felt a connection once I um, it was almost like um, having a, a new child I thought oh my gosh what is this river what is this organization that I need to get to know and 
once I dove in, I just felt such a connection because, um, not just because it's water for water's sake, but because of the way that U.S. laws work, water belongs to the people. It's a very, um, it, 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 it's democracy with a small d, and being able to be the voice of people thinking about what they wanted for their water and how they could connect to it and how they could protect it and restore it resonated with me in a way that I knew I had come home. And that was kind of the way I got started, and um, uh, it seems like a long time ago now. That's a great way to look at it, and it also kind of touches on one of the challenges of talking about the water crisis today. A lot of people don't really understand what we mean when we say we have a, a water crisis or a potential water shortage because they don't think of water as a non-renewable resource like oil or gas. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was just recently on a panel with some people from the power and renewable energy sector, and they were, were talking about a lot of the, the changes and um, especially legal and regulatory uh, matters as well as kind of investment issues in those sectors. And it was so different than in the water sector, in part because we forget that, I think a lot of people forget that water isn't just a commodity that we you know, use to flush our toilets and quench our thirst and um, uh, uh, grow our plants. We, we, we use it in so many ways. Water's used for transportation. Water's used for cityscapes and landscapes. Water's used for wildlife. And um, uh, we just we have to think about it in a, a whole different way. And when we use it for one thing, depending on how we how we treat it, we can have really negative consequences for other aspects of our environment and our communities. Um, uh, so um, I remember one time, a long time ago, someone, <laughs> one of my friends in grad school was running her tap in the kitchen, washing dishes and just letting it run and run. And I said, ah, you, know, you should turn it off. And she said, why do you worry about water? Because she saw that it was constantly being recycled. The water went through the pipes and goes back to the river. But depending on how we use it, there's energy embedded in that water. There are pollutants that we add when we use the water, depending on how we use, how we treat it and how we use it. Um, uh, you know, we really do have to be very thoughtful and careful about about how we use the water uh, so that there is enough for everybody. Yeah, you're... <clears throat> Excuse me, your, your classmates should have listened to some more soul music. You know, you don't miss the water until the well runs dry. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, since you've been involved with WIF for so many years, how do you see those concerns taking place and taking an influence into the domestic water market? Well, you know, it's sort of interesting. I think that for a long time in the, the U.S., certainly um, if we think kind of back to the uh, 70s and 80s, in the early days of the Clean Water Act, the emphasis was so much on cleaning up some very serious and egregious uh, sources of pollution that were really marring our landscapes and quality of life in our communities. And so that was the focus, upgrading wastewater treatment plants and other point sources of um, pollution so that we could clean up our waterways. And, and that has been a great success. And I think during that time period, the um, uh, professional members who might have associated what was uh, with, with WEF or it's um, with, with by other names in earlier days, but what is now WEF, 
um, we're really focused on, you know, how to build it, how to making sure people knew how to operate it, making sure that permits were met, making sure that the fees were collected appropriately to, to support the infrastructure, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, um, things kind of cooked along for the next two or three decades as um, uh, water quality expectations ratcheted down and so uh, adjustments needed to be made and upgrades needed to be made. But for the most part, um, uh, the utility operators and leaders wanted to keep a low profile. They, if things were going wrong, that's when that's when the, the public knew about them and they wanted they wanted things to go right and for the public not to really um, uh, have to think about it too much. But you know, fast forward to, I'd say, the last, you know, 8 10, or 10, 20 years, um, we're starting to see a shift in how uh, utilities and um, water providers operate in our communities, really seeing the kind of multiple benefits that that um, uh, we can provide to communities depending on how water is handled rather than just trying to build our way out of water challenges as we have uh, increased stormwater challenges, increased uh, non-point runoff challenges, uh, growing expectations, um, heightened expectations for how much phosphorus and nitrogen we can get out of our, our water wondering what are we going to do with the waste products from our water, um, how to turn them into useful products rather than waste products that have to be landfilled. Waste our utilities really started to shift and um, think about resource recovery. Um, That means recovering not just the clean water from our um, our sewage stream, but also how to recover energy. There's a lot of energy embedded right. in our sewage, um, enough that, that potentially every, um, well, what we tend to call wastewater treatment plants in the business, we like to call them water resource recovery facilities. But what each one of these facilities could hopefully become energy neutral, capturing enough energy from the... Um, uh, both the heat and the the um, uh, the by generating biogas from the, uh, the the carbon compounds in that sewage um, uh, to be able to operate their their facilities. We're seeing some of that already today in food processing yeah. and agriculture, uh, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's a convergence um, between uh, municipal wastewater and um, the, the food sector and the food manufacturing sector, both from the agricultural side as well as, you know, those who are making uh, our cookies and our hot dogs and, and our cheeses. Uh, there's so much energy embedded in the waste from those processes, and they can either treat that right there on site or send it to their municipal facility. But either way, it's basically the same set of processes that are being used. Um, but there's so much energy and so many nutrients in those byproducts that it's uh, it's really a crime to, to throw them away. We need to be capturing them and using them for um, for beneficial purposes. So there's been a big shift in, in our attention to water, shifting away from solely on pollution and purification to resource recovery and repurposing, hasn't there? It really has been. And it's a really exciting time to be in the water sector. Uh, there was a, a time where it was considered to be maybe the uh, – 
sleepy part of our of our utilities, uh, primarily because there was so much concern around compliance. And obviously, compliance is, uh, with the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, those are still very important. But we're going beyond those now and really trying to um, think about their role in, in sustainability. When, you know, using water, moving water, treating water is a big part of our energy portfolio in in the U.S. It takes a lot of energy to provide those services. And if we can slice that back, um, maybe even get it to zero, then um, at least zero in terms of net energy use, then we're really making a big contribution to um, to the, the, the global climate concerns. And unlike a lot of resources, water really is part of a global ecosystem. So how, how do you see the, uh, the domestic concerns that we're having in, in our industry and focused on water applying worldwide? Well, I think it kind of it, it goes um, it goes both ways. We can we have things that we can learn from other countries and other countries have things that they can learn from us. Certainly, and I think we're used to thinking of exporting our technologies and exporting our know-how. And certainly we do a lot of training of the world's engineers here in this country and should be very proud of that. Uh, We also have a lot to learn from what's going on in other countries. Certainly, resource recovery uh, has generally been a bit ahead of things in Europe, in Western Europe, and so they sometimes set the pace for uh, uh, what and, and we can learn from things that they're doing, and that's definitely true of phosphorus recovery. They, Germany in particular has uh, more stringent limits than most places in the U.S., and so they're um, moving ahead with that fairly aggressively. But also when we think of developing countries and countries that may have sanitation that is not up to what most people have come to expect in the United States. There's a lot of work, especially being um, catalyzed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, to find sustainable sanitation practices and technologies that can operate not only um, the technology to be able to operate, but also the sort of social and business structures that will allow them to operate. And and the there's a the focus of that research is in not just providing the sanitation but doing it in a way that uses little to no external water and little to no external energy input and uh, and and to do it inexpensively um, you, know, you you can do it if you're on the rocket ship but but that's a really expensive way to do it how can we do it in communities that are um, don't have a lot of extra cash sitting around um, have a lot of other things they're trying to juggle so they're not going to have you know PhD engineers in their community running their their uh, uh, sanitation while the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation research and the, uh, the researchers that are being supported by them are primarily focused in developing countries, what gets developed there will be very useful back here in the U.S. We have plenty of communities in the United States that are struggling to um, uh, to have, you know, what we consider to be kind of standard sanitation. But even beyond those rural communities that that, that could use kind of the same technology that, that is being developed uh, in, um, in other countries. 
some of that will also come back and, and probably inform how we can build our cities to be to use less water, less energy, potentially kind of uh, quasi off grid, if you will. Um, and it, it, it may really start to shake up the way that we see um, how our how our central utilities are designed and operated. Uh, now, that's kind of looking way down the pike. But um, uh, if you're really trying to look far into the future, I think those are the kinds of things we can expect. It's an exciting time, isn't it? It, re- it is. It really is. I guess some people may consider that to be scary, the unknown to be scary, but I think it's, I think it's exciting. If our listeners wanted to find out more information, where can they find you online? They can find me at broad, um, L. Broadus at broadviewcollaborative.com. That's L-B-R-O-A-D-D-U-S at broadviewcollaborative.com or at my URL, which is just broadviewcollaborative.com. Um, that's my website. And uh, uh, I always welcome input and questions from others. That's Lynn. how I learn. <laughs> Lynn, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much. And we'll see you at the next WebTech. You bet. In, in New Orleans in 2020. Laissez bon temps rouler. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. For our stateside listeners, November is time for turkey dinner with the family and watching football all day. Richard, is your family a uh, turkey family or are they a ham family come thanksgiving time we are a turkey and ham but it's got to be country ham it can't be city ham because we make it a certain way where you got to do the you know the brown sugar and you know it's really sweet and salty at the same time is it one of those hams that's cooked in dr pepper um no i've literally never heard of that (laughs) what about the uh have you ever seen the deep fried turkeys no that's actually delicious my dad makes a fantastic fried turkey yeah just remember to thaw that turkey first before you drop it in the fire uh fryer otherwise you get a rocket ship turkey yeah as long as you do it outside though i think you're okay uh, have you seen the have you seen the videos of people uh launching their turkeys into space because they accidentally put a frozen turkey into the fryer are we sure it was accidental <laughs> well maybe the, the ones that end up in the emergency room i think those are accidents well, anyone else may just be looking for a youtube celebrity <laughs> Well, I don't know, because uh, I've ended up in the hospital for uh, not accidentally shooting my friends and them shooting me with bottle rockets. So it could have just been on purpose, and it was just a bad accident. And that's why fireworks are limited to New Year's and Fourth of July. That's true. No Thanksgiving fireworks. That's right. (laughs) Well, if you're a longtime subscriber to MPT, then you know November means more than just turkey dinners. It also means MPT's annual Buyer's Guide is here. We're putting the finishing touches on the 2020 MPT Buyer's Guide, which is slated to be our biggest issue of the year. Inside, you'll find profiles of the pump industry's leading and most established companies, as well as a few new faces that will be making a name for themselves in the coming year. If you're not a current subscriber, there's still time to sign up for a free 12-month subscription, starting with our special November issue by visiting mpdmag.com and clicking the subscribe tab. This has been The Efficiency Point, a podcast from MPT Magazine. Follow us on Twitter at ModPumpMag for updates on our next episode. Today's episode was produced by Richard Council. Until next time, I'm your host, Jay Campbell. Thank you for listening.